Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Simply vegan isn't good enough. Today, a topic we usually don't cover in depth, the world of vegan cheeses and alternative proteins. This is a story of a company that thought they were extremely sustainable by simply making vegan plant-based cheese. But they found out that if they wanted to be net positive and have the biggest impact possible, they needed to look a lot further into their supply chain and completely change all their recipes. I really wanted to share this story as we need the plant-based community to be part of the regenerative transition, which means we need to ask difficult questions about industrial dairy and we need to ask difficult questions about the ingredients and supply chains behind plant-based products. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode. Today with Brad Van Stone, founder of Willycroft, a plant-based cheese for dairy cheese lovers who is going deep into regenerative agriculture and soil. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to start with the personal question, we always love to ask, why are you doing what you're doing? Why soil? Why plant-based cheeses? So this all started when I moved to Amsterdam. I started to eat a mainly plant-based diet with my partner, and we found it very easy to give up meat and milk, but cheese was, was definitely our favorite food until that point. I think uh, like a lot of Dutch people, we really struggled to give up cheese. And so we started to look for alternatives in the supermarket. And even back then, the alternatives for meat and milk were pretty good, but the alternatives for, for cheese left a, a lot to be desired back then. How, how many years ago is this, just to, to have an idea? We're talking four or five years ago. Okay, yeah. And so I started to experiment at home in my apartment, and I had a basic understanding of how to make cheese from, from my grandfather. He was a, a dairy farmer, so I was combining similar processes and practices, but with a plant-based ingredient base. And from there, the business kind of be began very artisanally. I was just going from market to market. And then after about a year, I realized that actually if I could change one thing, it was to solve the initial problem we were facing, which was good quality plant-based cheese at, at retail. But the whole intention of starting this was to create something that was genuinely having a positive impact on the planet. And the only way in which we, we realized we could do that is if we could really go back to the core of everything and really look at the beginning and the kind of transparency behind our entire supply chain and i guess that's how everything came back to the soil and the base and, and 
where things were produced, the emissions and the cause and effect of what what happens when they are produced. And so that's yeah, kind of how we came to be. I know sort of the answer, but I would love for you to share it. When did that realization came to you and the company? Because for many, I think, plant-based companies, that realization still has to arrive, that it's important to look beyond the ingredients. It's not just important to take out the dairy and to take out something, but it's actually important. What do you put in? And is it highly processed? How is it farmed, et cetera, et cetera? You came to that realization and decided to act on that which I would love to hear how that happened and how was that moment when you realized, okay, there's a world beyond the ingredients. Sure. So I think quite a common misconception is that just because something's plant-based, it's therefore better for the planet than dairy. And so once we got past that realization and realized that there was a lot more kind of nuances at play, that was when we started to unravel a whole sort of rabbit warren of, uh, of information, some of which was was very difficult to take because we had to really start from scratch and make decisions that we didn't think we were going to have to make. Like? What was the most difficult one? The most difficult realization and decision? Basically, just ripping up the rule book of every single recipe we ever made. So just to to give a brief kind of synopsis of plant-based cheese, you really have two main base ingredients. You have cashews or other nuts and then more processed components as a base. So the cashew-based cheeses are, or other nuts are using kind of traditional processes to create milk and then through fermentation creating certain flavorings. But the more processed variety are really just providing a sort of, I don't want to say mimic, but that sort of experience. It looks like cheese, it melts like cheese, it kind of tastes like cheese. And so we realized that actually both models, neither of them really worked from an emission standpoint and therefore we had to find a totally different route and this was pretty much in line with when we just released some products on the market and we're trying to celebrate those products and so uh, yeah you claim to be an environmentally conscious business you think you're on a really good path and then you get hit with the news that actually across your entire supply chain through a life cycle assessment, your emissions aren't really that much better than dairy. So that was definitely a tough realization, but the most important thing we've learned today, for sure. And what was the biggest driver of that smaller difference than you anticipated or hoped for? Was it the way cashew nuts or nuts in general are grown, the water, etc.? What was the biggest driver of that difference? Yeah, it was the cashews indeed. So it's the processing of them that is the real energy intensive part. So making the milk, basically. So it's actually taking the shell off, which a lot of nuts have shells and they have shells on the individual nut itself. So for every single one, you have to remove that shell. And often that process is done actually thousands of miles away. So I think two thirds of of the world's um, cashews are grown in Africa, but actually a huge proportion are then processed in somewhere like Vietnam and India and then sold. It could be in the States, it could be in Europe. So the distances they're traveling, but also the energy that's being used to process them is is very extensive. And often it's fossil fuel energy. So we actually had a partner that was processing on site. They were growing with a load of local farmers. I think they had a, a thousand smallholder farmers. So it was a pretty responsible partner. They were organic. They're employing 70% women. But even then, we were creating a highly emitting product. So it was a real kind of red flag that even when you do have 
some insight into your suppliers and you do think you've got some good partners, you can still cause a lot more harm than you imagine. And so that set of a journey to find alternatives for these nuts and to find ones that are less, let's say, emission heavy or actually even emission positive. Yeah, exactly. So we switched on to beans and pulses. So we're making that transition this year. So by the end of this year, all of our cheeses will be based on those ingredients. We spent about 18 months looking at all manner of different factors. So the main starting point is to create a milk. And from there, we can create a plant-based cheese. So there are certain nutritional components we're looking at. There are certain cost components. There are certain ethical components in terms of wages for the farmers. And we also now are starting to look at the soil as well. So it's difficult to find entirely regenerative ingredients at this stage. We'll maybe come on to that later. But for organic, that is something which we are, we're not totally organic by any stretch of the imagination, but we are at least sort of 50 to 60% minimum upwards to a couple of products which are going to be organic in a couple of months' time. So where possible, our philosophy is to select organic suppliers, but it's such a new space, the, the vegan cheese world. So we're using a lot of ingredients that I just haven't been certified certified at this stage. And how difficult is it then to, because a nut and a bean are, seem very different from the non-vegan cheese expert, like how different is that process now becoming and flavor wise? And is it much more processing for you? Like how difficult is it to switch from a, a nut to a milk and then a cheese to a bean and a milk and a cheese? Yeah, it's a totally different recipe. So a nuts are actually probably the best base ingredient to make a, a milk. They're high in, in protein and fat quite neutral in flavor, quite neutral in color. So they are just a, a brilliant ingredient. Beans are high in protein, but not high in fat. So you have to build up that fat level with other ingredients. They are actually a slightly better color white beans. So that, that is a plus. But yeah, we had to basically just rip up the rule book and, and start afresh with the recipes. There were certain things we could cross over, but it really has been a process of starting again. In terms of flavor, you're getting to, because of course your customers are used to the nut-based ones. And so is that going to be a journey or what are you expecting there? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Well, we always look at it actually by comparing it to the dairy cheese we're replacing because in our eyes, whilst it's, we think it's fantastic when someone can just switch their diet totally without needing this, I do think for most people, it has to be a comparable product in taste. I think the best meat and milk replacements that are on the market are really offering something that is incredibly compelling when you place plant-based and, and dairy next to each other. So for us, that is the target always. is not necessarily to compare ourselves to other plant-based cheeses, but always the dairy cheese that we're trying to create an alternative for. And that's, I mean, I'm just imagining or assuming that maybe the bean-based cheeses, they might lend themselves to make different cheeses than the nut ones. Is that the case? Like it naturally goes to a certain class of cheeses and the nut ones naturally like bend towards another. Is that the case? Like you're going to release different cheese varieties because of the beans, because of different ingredients? Yeah. 
so we at this stage kind of our first focus was to create the cheeses that people are having every day the dairy cheeses that people are having every day so in the dairy cheese world you've got mozzarella feta cheddar powder those sort of cheeses so those are the ones that we focused on initially so i couldn't say how it would work for say a camembert or, or a more sort of aged cheese or, or more of a kind of delicacy but um certainly for the more everyday cheeses it's proven to be a really fantastic base ingredient and do you see this movement or your, let's say, larger scope looking beyond your ingredients, looking beyond the LCA, the life cycle assessment, is that something that, that you've seen other plant-based cheeses or, let's say, alternative protein companies starting to look at or looking at as well? Is there somebody you could call like in this space, like, look, we're thinking about this, somebody that has made a few steps already, or are you really lonely in the, in the movement at the moment? We're lonely, but we're not an island. There are two companies in Europe that I know of who are who are really looking at this this as well. There's a Swiss company called New Roots. They have just released an LCA. Really fantastic company, great people. And um, there's another company in Germany. I can't remember the name of who's put their emissions on their packaging, which I think is another really important step. So it's starting, but this is where I think we also need to see a little bit more sort of governmental involvement. I really think a carbon tax would be a fantastic step. We only need to look at the kind of move to a sugar tax and alcohol tax and cigarette tax to see the improvements those have had in restricting or improving sort of certain health components. And I think when we put a monetary figure on carbon, I do really think that is going to force the hand of supermarkets, of suppliers, of producers. And yeah, I see that as something that can really help to lower the emissions that the food industry has. So you've been working on the ingredients, which is an enormous job for a small team like yourself. So in terms of sourcing, how difficult, I mean, you mentioned we're trying to find a number of ingredients organic, but beyond that, or the soil discussion has been very, very difficult non-existent in many cases what are you working on in that area to improve that like to make it easier for yourself but also for others obviously to start sourcing some of these ingredients in a way that is a bit more holistic looking at the full picture and what is your because i know you have plans there but i can imagine as a small team it's already tricky enough to change all your recipes and figure out that part but what are you thinking on the sourcing part and what are you working on yeah so this part is kind of split in two so we've got some partners who are already really pushing regenerative practices or, or at the, the very least they're already organic. So they're already, you know, very much on a similar mindset. And when you say partners, you mean farmers, I'm imagining in Europe or somewhere. Yeah, suppliers who can kind of give us multiple ingredients and their philosophies are very much in line with ours, but their buying power is just so huge that the impact that they can have is just enormous. So we're very lucky to work with people like that, but we're also conscious of, of doing some more kind of actions on our end. So we've begun a transitional farming project with a couple of local farmers here in, in the Netherlands. We're teaming up with also a, a couple of partner organizations like uh, Renatured to help uh, run the project. And the goal is to basically grow some of our main ingredients, so the white beans, on what is currently dairy land to give the dairy farmers a, another source of income, but to also localize our supply chain and to prove that plant-based producers and dairy farmers can work together. 
So we're going to start this on a small scale initially. We're hoping to plant this year, but at the very latest, it, it will be next year. Looking at probably 10 to 20 acres initially, so so very small. But the goal is just to get a couple of harvests in, prove that this ingredient can be grown here, and, and it is already, but we just want to really cement that it can. And then we want to roll this out with much more scale. And for, let's say, I'm a dairy farmer in the Netherlands, what does it mean concretely for me that you're working with me on a transition? Except for probably planting a few acres of white beans, but what does it entail? Yeah, so I think as we do see climate change really kicking in over the next few years, I think we do need to look at kind of multiple income streams for our farmers. I think that will improve their resilience. But I do also foresee a world that does have less dairy in it. I think the, the battle we're fighting is not with smallholder dairy farms, it's with big dairy, which has totally you know, left a lot of farmers behind, my grandpa included. That, that kind of saw an end to a fair price. Um, it saw an end to a multifaceted farms, the care of animals. And so we want to work with those who are still farming in small holding setups to make sure that they are, are protected because the subsidies you see for someone like in, in the EU, that's not going to these guys, that's going to, to the big dairy organizations. So, yeah, I guess we're kind of reaching out a hand to those dairy farmers and saying that, yeah, we respect the role that you play and, and we want you to be as big a part of, of the future food system as you have been thus far. And then it would mean that like on part of my hectares or acres, I will plant white beans in this case and then you will, with an offtake agreement, and that will add an interesting income stream instead of putting, I don't know, solar panels on, on the land or instead of doing some other crop, etc., to basically add to the small scale dairy that I'm operating. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How do you see that playing out for like that? You say we're fighting against or we're competing against or what we want to change is the big dairy. What do you see there happening? What's the, some of them are entering the space that you're in as well, probably not with the same values and intentions. But what do you see that whole discussion on the large, definitely not alternative protein companies starting to enter the space of the alternative protein companies, buying up some big ones, setting up funds? I mean, we see all the activities left and right. What's your thought there as a very active player in it? Yeah, I mean, I guess if the change happens, I actually don't necessarily mind how it happens. I would rather it happen a certain way, but much like with the renewable space with, with energy, the guys that are producing most of the fossil fuel energy are inevitably the people who can make the greatest change if they really put their time and effort into setting up a, a more sustainable energy sector. So they have the infrastructure, they have the connections, they have the capital, they have the research and the manpower. So it's a similar story with dairy. So I don't think we're seeing the same kind of switch just yet. We're seeing quite a lot of um, protective moves happening in Europe surrounding the naming of products, the packaging of products and, and those sorts of things. Which means they're getting scared. Exactly. But um, change is definitely coming. I do think a carbon tax is on the horizon, which will dramatically change the price of food and force a lot of consumers to consider alternatives. I think the quality of the alternatives is getting a lot better. People are raising a lot of questions about factory farming. And so... All of these indicators are pushing towards a different system. And, but uh, yeah, I, I just hope that they decide to move with it rather than trying to fight against the tide. 
because personally, even though we are a plant-based producer, we don't see a world without dairy. That's not the world we're trying to create. The world we do see is a world that can feed 10 billion people by 2050, in which scenario we're going to have to produce 70% more food. And we're not going to do that with the current system. So we need to yeah, just think about how we're allocating our resources, think about how we're growing our food. And, and that requires a different kind of food system than the one we have now. And to go a bit deeper into that analogy, I think we can learn a lot from the renewable energy space. You see some very large players moving and we can ask a lot of questions about it. But if you look just at Dong, which used to be, which I think changed name to Orset or something, the Danish oil and gas operator became a fully wind, one of the biggest wind developers in the world. And of course, took a long shot, of course, sold their, their fossil assets. Somebody still owns them. They're not completely retired, but made a huge shift or transition and seems to be leading the pack at the moment. And others are sort of scrambling to catch up. What if you would be, let's say, the head of uh, Friesland Campina, which is one of the biggest dairy cooperatives in the world based in the Netherlands? What would be like you're in control of the oil tanker? What would be your, you have maybe a couple of years because then shareholders are going to get very nervous, et cetera. What would be your, your first few steps to set up some change there? Because that's a massive dairy company. Some small scale is still part of it, but I think most of it is large, large subsidy driven dairy. What would be your moves as the new appointed CEO? So I, I would love to see true cost accounting and, and a target for net positivity. So first up with the true cost accounting, as you mentioned, Friesen Campina is, is primarily propped up by subsidies or they're able to offer the price points they can because of subsidies. They're exporting all over the world with prices that local markets can't compete with because of EU taxpayer money. So I would love to see them take a responsible stance and actually charge the price that should be charged for their products. It would lead inevitably to a loss in, in revenue. But I think the first player that moves here in the dairy space will get a lot of credit. And that you know will, will, re will resonate with, with consumers, I think. And then from a net positivity uh, standpoint, it is very possible to regeneratively farm dairy and seek which is interesting to hear that from a plant-based producer, yeah. <laughs> and no, I, I mean, there's been a lot of reports, a lot of great stuff coming out of the US in particular with regards to regenerative dairy farming. And it's very clear that you can farm dairy in, in a regenerative way. So I think those would be the main things. But there's a but. You have to radically change your everything you're doing, basically. Yeah, it would take huge change. And yeah, the capital implications would be mega. But I think even just setting a date that isn't a ridiculous dot on the horizon, but is say 2030, 2040 for, for targets, you know, maybe perhaps it was we're 50% there by 2030, 100% there by 2040, that would still be an improvement on now where it's, you know, an interesting conversation, but not really one that, that they're taking. Like in the UK, we're banning the sales of all internal combustion engine or ICE vehicles by 2030. Yeah. And it would have happened anyway, probably, because it's going so fast now in, in electric transportation. But it's even if it doesn't reach out, like it creates suddenly everybody scrambling and starting to like, this is real. This is going to happen if it's 2031 or 2032 or 2029. It doesn't really matter. But it's the move is there. And yeah, that would be very powerful to put a, a net positive statement out there. And then, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I think it's also the responsibility of shareholders and the market. I mean, everything is driven by today, but 
been reading a lot of recently about intergenerational thinking. You're reading the, the good ancestor or not? What's the... I just started like a week ago, maybe I'm, I'm only page 20, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic and it's tapping into a lot of existing conversations. So a lot of the ideas aren't necessarily new, but it's providing a, a kind of framework or a way of looking at it. But I, I just love the notion of always thinking about, okay, so what is the future generation going to think of us? Because when you put it into that context, you remove your own individual ego, you remove the present day, and I think then you make much better decisions. And we have to act on things today, but we should be acting on things today, knowing they're going to be better tomorrow, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years time. Seven generations, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's that wonderful um, uh, group in North America that think in a seven generational way, which is, yeah, very inspirational. And I'm really then like, how do you get that into, and Friesland Campina is a sort of different story because they are cooperative, so they might have, or they could have a longer term view. But if you look at Danone, for instance. Great example. That are sort of control, like, I mean, they have a longer term view on some shareholders, but now they get an activist one that actually is pushing to Emmanuel Faber to change because they need to need results per quarter. Like, what can we do there to, because that seems to be that really the underlying every quarter or at least every six months, I need to show X growth or X, which completely takes you away from investing for five or 10 years, which used to be the case. And so what, I mean, it's a very difficult question. This is a rabbit hole, but if you're running a company, let's say you're now CEO of Danone and you have these active, you have these shareholders that are pushing, like, how would you counteract that? Do you have any, because these are long-term things and they should be because that's kind of important, but they are thinking short-term of their next shareholder, their next report coming out. We're actually looking at this ourselves at the moment about how we solidify impact decisions. And so there's a few things that you can do or from what we've seen from other organizations. So one is appointing an impact board, which is kind of slightly separate to the main function of, of the business. And it's a neutral body and they are given certain decisions on certain components. So for example, if it's a, a spend, if it's a packaging decision if it's just a major investment that could mean that the company is not making a responsible decision that impact board then votes on it so they kind of have a, a golden share the golden share is another option yeah yeah that's uh we had armin story and argol of purpose ventures a while ago i should definitely check in with them again but they're like who controls the steering wheel of your company uh, even if Unilever puts half a billion on the table or whatever, a crazy amount that changes everybody's lives. Like, how do you make sure you, you stay impact-driven and long-term focused? It has to do with legal stuff. It has to do with controlling certain decisions. Also, when you're not there anymore, because maybe you moved on to something else and maybe the key people of the team have changed. How do you create organizations that, that last much longer than we are used to now? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting to look back on the origins of a company, which were initially set up as a for good service for society, but now it's it's got a, a very different route. So I think we need to return back to that idea of service and making society, the planet, whatever it might be, a better and improved place by our actions. Yeah, and companies are, I mean, I'm not bashing against that. I think it's the strongest organization form we have. It's just, it's a tool as everything else, which means you need to really make sure you structure it well and think of all the bad stuff that can happen and all the annoying things that can come around to make sure if you're interested in long-term stuff, 
that it can run for 20, 30 years, because then you're going to have the biggest impact and not sell after three or four or five or whatever the crazy this is now. Yeah. And to come back to kind of our supply chain and that kind of thinking, we have to be thinking in decade long periods because we very much want to have a regenerative supply chain. But we also have to be realistic that it's not going to happen overnight and we have to really work and, and fight to make it happen. And therefore, that long term thinking is absolutely crucial. And if we're looking at, I love to ask this question, which is always a bit lengthy, but the ITN framework, the importance, tractability and neglectedness, importance meaning what's the scale of the problem? I think the scale of the problem of industrial dairy, let's say, is very clear. Many people for sure still underestimate the just the sheer impact of factory farming in general, both for meat, dairy and, and other animal products. So if this would be fixed, a lot would be better. But if it fixed the proper way, the tractability, like how solvable is it? I think you're starting to unpack that. Like how solvable is it if not using certain nuts that are very damaging, we found out. Like that's something. But neglectedness, like how would you rate your work if you look at the importance, the tractability, and how many other people basically are working on it? It sounds like it's course pretty high, but what's your feeling on that, your work at, at uh, Willycroft? Yeah, so in terms of an important standpoint, I, I do think it, it is very important work. The emissions of food, well, food is the biggest emitting sector of all when you look at every part of the chain. Also, dairy cheese is the third emitting food type. So I think the importance is really clear. And on the plant-based side, we're not seeing enough accountability, traceability with current players on the market. So it's really important that we take a proactive stance in showing an example of how to kind of map out these these LCAs and, and build a supply chain that is a bit more responsible. And then on the solvability, I think maybe first good to mention the uptake. So the uptake now is, is incredible with plant-based alternatives. I mean, in the UK, 25% of all milk sold is plant-based and there's only actually 1% vegan in the UK or 1.5%. So that's a huge proportion of flexitarian. So the quality of the product is there. But again, to go back to the kind of improvements that, or the sort of traceability and the accountability to the environment, that is where there's much, much work to be done. And this is kind of, I think, the second phase of the plant-based space. I think the first phase, or the first phase was really just products coming onto the market and a lot of excitement. And now I think consumers are going to... Oatly going through the roof and yeah, that's it. And everybody's suddenly paying attention. I mean, many people did five years ago, but now it's really different. And now we need to have that discussion on ingredients, but also on, on processing and what does it actually do to your body? We know much more about dairy, about the definitely not health benefits and the health benefits. But now we need to have that discussion about white bean cheese, because otherwise we're just replacing one thing for the other. Yeah. No, the worst thing we can do is create another problem by solving one. I mean, that's not helping anything. So yeah, I think this this next phase is really about delving into those things you've mentioned. So really understanding the impact on our planet's health, but also on humanity's health as well. How is that happening? Like, what's your view on that? Because obviously you cannot do 30-year randomized controlled trials with fixing or replacing one cheese for the other. Like, what are you seeing that in white beans? Like, how much do you have to process it? What other ingredients are there? that could trigger certain things. What's your, your view there? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is that for most producers, we know a lot about the in individual ingredients. So when they're combined as a combination, that's where we're perhaps still needing to learn at this stage. But um, 
I think the first step on the ingredients is, is there. There are some, you do look on the back of a pack sometimes on plant-based products and do question, you know, what are half of these things and why are there 25 ingredients in a single product? I think that is somewhere that needs to change. But we're seeing things like the Nutri-Score come out in Europe, which is a, a standard kind of health scoring mechanism. And yeah, as, as I said, I do think a carbon tax on food is not too far away from an emission standpoint, at least on a trial basis in an individual country. But this is these are all areas that need a lot more work and inputs, and, and we're really at the beginning. And from your customer perspective, like your openness on emissions and ingredients now, because you're on that journey, you're talking about it, you're releasing an impact report. How has been the response from your customers that you're switching from nuts to other things, or that you weren't so sustainable as you hoped you were? What, what has been your, because you for sure have many fans, what, what has been their involvement, response, et cetera, on this journey? We've never had anyone negatively look at it because I think we've always been quite open the minute we've had information at hand. And I think where people get frustrated is when there's a problem, but you don't address the solution or when you try and hide the problem. So, I mean, some of the companies that I admire the most are ones that, always kind of look in the mirror and take action at what they see companies like patagonia for example they started using organic cotton in the 90s but the uptake across the whole fashion industry has actually been really low and they see that as quite a personal kind of setback that they haven't been able to drive the change that they would have liked and i think it's really fantastic when a company is constantly trying to improve constantly trying to evolve. And the minute you put numbers behind anything, you can look to improve about beyond those things. When you're just basing your actions on assumptions, that's that's a dangerous place to be. So as you learned, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, but I can imagine, let's say the customers in the vegan space can be quite, I don't know, focused on that. And it's interesting as a company takes them on a journey as well. Like there is a world beyond and maybe some of the other vegan things or plant-based things you're buying are 25 ingredients and actually are not that clean. You're not saying that, but by basically, of course, implicitly you are by making the moves yourself and having a cleaner ingredient list and having potentially the carbon on it and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, yeah, maybe it's a message that some people don't want to hear because it makes life a lot more complicated. Yeah. No, I mean, I think anyone who is, willing and able to look at things pragmatically and with nuance and depth sees that this is absolutely the right path. Anyone who's looking for a headline might see it differently. <laughs> and imagine an audience of smart impact investors listening to this conversation, like with all the attention there is for plant-based at the moment, what would you advise them, obviously without giving investment advice, but what would you advise them in terms of questions to ask, directions to look at, like, what if you will be investing in the space? What would you be looking at? What is exciting to you now as you're so deep in, into the process? I think a good tasting product is not enough. I think you really have to have something that is looking at a multitude of factors, really delving into supply chain, really looking at where things are from, you know, who are the people behind producing these ingredients, and also the health components of the product as well. So I, I think a very much kind of long-term view is important because there are a lot of things that seem to be sort of, I don't want to use the word fad, but I just have <laughs> but a, a better word to describe that. Basically, it seems like there's a lot of kind of 
quick fixes and things that don't necessarily have that much depth to it. And I think whilst this huge growth is really exciting to see, and I think it's fantastic that, all the, that a lot of options are now available, I just hope that we learn from other lessons. And as we mentioned earlier, we don't create other issues by bringing something new onto the market that hasn't been totally thought through. So that, yeah, that's maybe a word of warning. Digging deeper, yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot coming out now, a lot of noise, like always when stuff starts heating up, it's uh, everybody jumps on it. If you would be running an investment fund with a crazy amount, let's say a billion, what would you be looking at? What would you be investing in starting tomorrow when you're head of this new, newly created investment fund? You can spend it whatever you want, not in grant capital. It has to be investment, but could be extremely long-term. What would be your, your priority list? What would be your focus? So can I mention a couple of things? Absolutely. You can do a whole list if you want. You can do 50 million each, 5 million each, <laughs> whatever you want to take in terms of space. It's Some people answer with, I would put it all in X and some other have a whole list of things they want to look into. But I'm asking it because I, I'd like to look into your head and what would you prioritize? I'm not asking because we need to know exactly it's going to be 55 million point six. What is the first things you would go after and with more or less, how would you split it up? So I really, really believe that lobbying is fundamental to us changing so many things about our food system. The guys who are lobbying at the moment do not really care about the planet and they're protecting single interests and the status quo. So I would put a lot of that money into lobbying, which would probably lead to being fired at a VC because it's not going to lead to instant return, but it would lead to a lot of widespread change. I really do think that that is a big part of what's happening now. And they would go after carbon tax. They would go after... True cost accounting, carbon tax. Um, yeah, getting a lot of the really important fundamentals right so that the market price switches. Because as with renewables is the perfect example. Now that so many options are price comparable, people are buying electric cars. People are using renewable energy. Um, so I think with food, we need to go and look at a similar sort of model. Um, I would also look to support projects that are really promoting the regenerative label. I think we've got this amazing momentum now behind regenerative farming, but we now need tangible things that we can buy in the supermarkets. And So you would go after food companies, the food company side of things. And I, I think what's maybe missing at this stage is finished products. You've got a lot of ingredients that can be regenerative, but making that into a product is the next phase, I think. So I would try and support projects that are looking to do that because I think that is an important step. That is something we personally are are struggling with at this stage. We can get 50% there perhaps, but we, we're not going to be able to get the, the whole way there at this stage. So when then you would, would you invest in companies like Willycroft or would you invest in like your suppliers that then buy from farmers to, to get more like ready to ready ingredients for you to make your cheeses or for others to make other things? Because you mentioned before, it's difficult to, to get, I mean, maybe the, some of the supply of the white beans or et cetera, et cetera, is there, but then the transformation piece seems to be missing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think we need more ingredients and in farms that are using these models. So yeah, I think it has to start there. Um, we need to plant these seeds now because it will probably not Literally, come into yeah. fruition yeah, for, for five to 10 years. So yeah, I, I think we have to to get a lot of the 
the fundamentals right at either end of the spectrum. You've got the lobbying at the top and then the farmers, which which are obviously the root of, of everything and, and the soil. And that will ensure that everything in between starts to adjust in the right way. If you could change one thing, so we took away your fund, I'm very sorry, but you have a magic wand and a magic power to change one thing, only one, so you cannot say carbon tax and true cost accounting. What would you go after if you could change one thing in the ag and food industry, which could be anything, could be global consciousness, could be, I mean, we've had many, many, you've heard some episodes, many, many different answers to this question, but what would be your one change? Yeah, I, I had to ponder on this for quite some time. That's why I ask it. Yeah, I do think it is this, though. I, I think I would love to see us return to our grandparents' diet, <laughs> which sounds strange, but that would solve so many problems. We we wouldn't have this huge dependence on meat. We would be paying the true cost for things. There are so many things that were got right at that stage. I mean, if you look at the cost of the household spends in America, for example, now on food, it's gone from 20% per family down to 10%. Yet they're eating more meat than ever, more more dairy. And, you know, these things just just don't add up. So I would uh, go back to a bygone era. (laughs) And go forward, sort of, because I think there's a lot of, because I don't think we want to go back to the back breaking. No. I mean, they got many things right, but many things not so much as well. But there is an interesting, I think, on the diet part and the changing diet that can really lead to a lot of change. Like if we not incorporate nuts everywhere because that has its issues, but if we like just the peas and legumes, just the, there's massive switches that leads to simply by switching a few things in your diet. And we need to push for a lot of other things, but I think that's a, and it was much healthier. I mean, if you look at the current health crisis, which comes from many different reasons, but very much comes from the industrial chemical driven, input driven farming ways. And then what we eat out of it, it's a massive, an absolute massive one. Yeah. The nutritionals behind the food now and then is, is another crazy comparative point. Yeah. There was a lot. Do you get questions on that? Like vegan cheese compared to dairy cheese? What does it mean for me, for my body basically? And what do you answer to that? Yeah, we do. We do actually. We're, we're actually doing a kind of synopsis directly comparing each cheese to the dairy equivalent at the moment they shape up pretty well i think one thing though that is always worth bearing in mind is we are trying to create cheese so it's not like it's uh, we're creating a superfood therefore that you know can taste like cheese but also give you your five a day and all of your millions of vitamins and stuff so we heed caution when people you shouldn't only eat this. Yeah. You definitely shouldn't <laughs> yeah. only eat Worthycroft and you can definitely quote me on that. <laughs> and you shouldn't only eat cheese in general. Yeah, no, it's part of a diet, obviously, of a hopefully diverse. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you be busy this year? We're still sort of at the beginning of 2020. Not really. We're in March already. Don't know how fast that went, but what's your, apart from the whole ingredient, the launching, the new cheeses or improved cheeses or changed cheeses, what other big projects are you working on? If you could actually work on something else, because this is a massive one. <laughs> no, so that's taking up a lot of time, the, the switch from nuts on to, to beans and legumes. But we're also just about to release our first impact report. And so that's been a real focus for the team this year. Which should be out the moment. I will link it below, obviously, for anybody listening. which should be out by the time this interview is out. So. Thank you. Yeah. And we're also doing some big campaigns this year to try and get some buying from other kind of plant-based producers and well any kind of food producer actually so we're the first campaign is surrounding making mother nature your ceo so we appointed mother nature as our ceo last year how has that been 
she's doing an excellent job. Okay, great. Yeah. She's been tough in places, but um, yeah, she's kept us on the straight and narrow, that's for sure. But no, we've, we've put in quite a few requirements that a company needs to follow up on if they do make this appointment, because we don't want it just to be an appointment and then it's kind of left there. We, we do want to introduce certain requirements. So the sort of things we're looking at is committing to writing an impact report within two years, publishing emissions on packaging within a time frame, looking at accreditations like B Corp and, and other kind of accreditations. So yeah, a set of goals to work towards essentially. That's a campaign we're doing in, in April. And then we're also putting our emissions on our packaging this year, which will be a really nice step, I think, because that's us really then saying to the consumers and, and to all of our uh, sellers, you know, that this is something that we really think should be given greater attention so I, yeah, I would say those are the real, real core projects. And we're also really trying to make improvements on our supply chain and have our first two organic products coming out this year, which which is really exciting. But there's still a lot of work to be done on the supply chain side. Yeah, I can imagine. And I love asking this question slightly edited from John Kempf. What do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture and food that others don't believe to be true? I do genuinely believe that it can be a, a label a consumer label. I think organics virtues have led to some incredible improvements to the produce of food over the last 30 years, but I'm very glad that we're taking the next step because organic does have its limitations in certain countries. Are you going after ROC, like regenerative organic? I will link the interview with Elizabeth below, which we released recently. Are you planning to go after, let's say, organic plus in this case, but also adding soil health, animal health, and obviously social sides to it? That is our goal. So we are hoping this year to know what timeframes we have for that, because I, what I am very conscious of is making a statement about when we can achieve this. And we're still in the information gathering phase. So we can comfortably say we're going to be able to get organic with, with two products this year and, and many more in the future. But in terms of regenerative organic, which is definitely a goal, I don't want to commit at this stage, but we will do everything in our power to make it happen. Perfect. Thank you so much. I don't think I have any further questions. I would love to check in because I think it's going to be an incredibly busy year for you. You just finished a crowdfunding raise actually a few weeks ago or a month ago. And it sounds like you're going to put that to good use and riding the wave of plant-based, I wouldn't say hype, but definitely growth, but asking a lot more questions behind that. So I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and raise some of those questions you've been asking and that many others should as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me and for all the great work you're doing as well. If you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities, to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, 
If this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.